Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. Today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Is there anybody here who receives or who reads the voice of the matters? Okay. In the August edition of, of the Voice of the Matters this year, there's this story of Emmanuel. Emmanuel is a pastor. Sometime last year, he had just finished praying with his wife, Lodi and his mother-in-law when they suddenly heard gunfire outside their home. And then more than 30 Islamic militants burst into the house. They tore down the curtains and bound and blindfolded them. Before they took them away, the leader of the group said, and this is a quote, you're going to suffer in the bush, and if we like, we might kill you. So they dragged them away and they, they were working. They ended up working for hours in, in the forest. After a short while, they soon saw that Emmanuel's mother-in-law was slowing them down. He begged them to let her go, but they refused. And then one of them hit her on the head with the butt of his gun and caught her in the back of her neck with a machete, left him for dead, left her for dead. Emmanuel lives in Kaduna, Kaduna State in northern Nigeria. I was born in Nigeria, and it ranks number seven right now on the list of top 50 countries where it is most difficult to follow Jesus. So here's what I want to do this morning. Um, I, I, want to, I want us to think theologically about persecution. So I, I want to explore the reasons why persecution happens spiritual theological reasons. Why, why do Christians experience persecution? Then secondly, how should we think about persecution? And how should we respond to persecution? Those are the three questions I hope that we'll, we'll answer together. Uh, I was glad to hear that you guys have been reading through Acts. Let's, let's turn to Acts chapter 1, just at the beginning, the very beginning of the book of Acts. In verse 3, it says, during the 40 days after his crucifixion, talking about Jesus, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive, and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you will open our eyes. Open our eyes to, to see. Open our ears to hear you. 
I pray that you'll touch our hearts to respond to the truth of your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So for a period of 40 days, that's over a month, Jesus presented himself to his followers. And what was he talking about? Luke tells us here, he was talking about the kingdom of God. Of all things, why the kingdom of God? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus is a king who came to establish a kingdom. So, the first observation I want to make this morning is that Christians experience persecution because of kingdoms in conflict. That's the first point. Christians experience persecution because of kingdoms in conflict. Now, Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God. In fact, all over the gospel, we hear this language and mention of the kingdom. In, in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 8, verse 1, it tells us that Jesus, and I quote now, he went through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, um, we're told that Jesus, what he preached, what he proclaimed, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Even when Jesus sent out the, the, the disciples, he sent them out to preach. Here's what he, has, he had them preach. He had them preach that the kingdom of God has come near you. And it's not just that Jesus was announcing the advent of that kingdom, he was also saying that he himself was the inauguration of that kingdom. So at some point, he, he's speaking with some of his opponents, the, the Pharisees and those religious leaders, and he says to them, well, don't look around wondering where the kingdom is. The kingdom of God is right in the midst of you. What was he talking about? He was talking about himself. The kingdom of God is right in the midst of you because I'm here standing and speaking with you. Now, if, if, if we want to hear one of the places where Jesus talks, gives us his, his mission statement, as it were, in Luke chapter 4, verse 43, he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. In John's gospel, you remember that, that night conversation? Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, and Jesus tells Nicodemus how to get into the kingdom of God. And he says... You can't be a part of that kingdom unless you're born from above. Nicodemus says, well, well, what are you talking about? Look at me. How can I go back into my mother's womb? And sometimes we think, you know, it was Nicodemus daft or something. Couldn't he understand the metaphor? I think he understood Jesus very well. 
But he was saying to Jesus, there are no do-overs. Look at me. But Jesus was saying to him, the kingdom of God is not, it's not a new program. God makes you new. It's new people. So all this talk about a kingdom, well, what's a kingdom anyway? Kingdom, it's the domain of a king. So when Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God, he was talking about the domain of God's reign, where God rules. So back to Acts chapter 1. So he spent 40 days, Jesus, talking to his disciples about the kingdom of God. And in verse 6, the disciples ask him a question. It's a very interesting question. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? It's the New Living Translation. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He's been talking about the kingdom of God and what they understood, we can see from the question. First of all, will you at this time, for them they thought, well, yeah, the, the kingdom is immediate. Restore the kingdom, there's, there's that connotation of a political or territorial kingdom to Israel. There was also this ethnic and nationalistic focus in the question. I mean, where Israel, everybody else is a Gentile. What they thought was that the kingdom of God was about the nation of Israel. Followers of Jesus are citizens and ambassadors of that kingdom. But friends, the kingdom to which we belong, the kingdom of God, is not territorial. It doesn't have geographical boundaries. You can't build a wall around it. It's not political. You can't secure it through the ballot box. It's not ethnic or nationalistic. The kingdom of God is, is found wherever God rules, wherever you find members, citizens of that kingdom, the kingdom of God is there. When I'm driving on, on the freeway, the kingdom of God is intersecting with whatever is happening at that point. When I stand in my class teaching or having a conversation in a coffee shop with students or, or with a stranger, the kingdom of God has broken in right there. Like I said, Jesus, Jesus was trying to say something to them with his response to that question. His response is it's a little bit of a rebuke 
Well, not a little bit. It's really a rebuke to them. We're ambassadors of that kingdom. And, and what does an ambassador do? An ambassador represents the interests of his nation, right? He represents and advances the interests of the nation. Part of what we're called to do is to expand and advance the kingdom of God. Here is Jesus' response in verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. It's a polite rebuke if there was ever one. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the kingdom of God is not just in Jerusalem. It's not just in Judea and Samaria. He actually explicitly says, you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. But beginning right where they were, that question was being asked on the Mount of Olives on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Now there's something I would like to point out here about that term, witnesses. You'll be my witness. Now today, when we talk about witnessing, um, oftentimes what we have in mind are private personal conversations we have with people. Maybe friends or family members and loved ones where we share our faith with them and we tell them about Jesus, which is a good thing. Don't hear me saying it's not. I just want to point out that the word there, martus, is actually sometimes translated martyr. And that when we find it used in the New Testament, the witness talked about there is way different from how we use it when we talk about witnessing as Christians today. First of all, it was almost exclusively referring to something public. Something public with great cost, usually before authorities, where the people of God, their well-being, their safety, their lives were actually at risk. And they were bearing witness representing the kingdom of God. Jesus responds to the people who were asking how he would establish their kingdom was, hey, this kingdom is everywhere. It's not what you think. And your call is to bear witness to this kingdom wherever you are. The kingdom of God, where Christ reigns, is in conflict with another kingdom. 
In John chapter 5, verse 19, he says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Many times, um, that's 1 John 5, 19. And many times in the Gospels, particularly in John's Gospel, Jesus calls Satan variously the prince of this world or the ruler of this world. Because of these kingdoms in conflict, it's reasonable for any follower of Jesus to expect persecution. The kingdom of God is in conflict with this other kingdom. With another kingdom that's at war with the kingdom of God. That kingdom strikes back. Persecution. Christians experience persecution because of kingdoms in conflict. That's the first observation. The second observation is that Christians should expect persecution. Let me say that again. And I will sound very un-American when I say it. Christians should expect persecution. Because friends, let's be clear, Jesus all but guarantees his followers that they will experience it. In Mark chapter 8, verse 34 to 35, he says, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. In Matthew 10, 22, it says, You'll be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. John 15, 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. See, friends, the church was born. The church was founded in the context of persecution. And the church's self-identity was forged in the backdrop of persecution. Here's how the writer of 1 Peter, here's what he says to the believers he's writing to. He says to them, Beloved, 1 Peter chapter 4, 12 to 14. Beloved, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon you to prove you as though something strange were happening to you. Do you see what he's saying there? But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This same writer actually calls it a calling. He says, we are called to that. 1 Peter 2 verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. But, but here's the thing. 
As we, as we acknowledge that, that Christians should expect persecution. I think there are two extremes that are important for us to guard against. The first is when we make our definition of persecution so extreme that only martyrdom qualifies as persecution. If your life is not at stake and you're not about to die or you don't lose your life, then it's not persecution. I think that's a mistake. But there's another extreme too where everything, any and every suffering that a Christian experiences is called persecution. For instance, I've sometimes heard people say, hey, Christians are now suffering persecution right here in the United States. No, we're not. Now, I I don't mean that there are no people, no Christians in the U.S. who are suffering persecution. I'm pretty sure that there are. But Christians as a whole are not, not by any meaning of the term, experiencing persecution here in the U.S. Now, I, I would acknowledge that things have changed. I would acknowledge that things are more difficult for us now than they were, say, 40 years ago, even 20 years ago. But there's a difference between losing cultural influence and suffering persecution. So I'll tell you something that happened on Friday. So my my 16-year-old daughter, she's part of the leadership team in the youth group at church. So um, right now, they, they went on a retreat with the youth pastor and I think two, two chaperones, adult volunteers. So you have these five high school kids. They're on a leadership retreat. They left on, on Friday afternoon. So she was awake through the night, parking, really excited about leaving. So in the morning, Friday morning, she's going to school. She says, hey, um, mom, when you pick me up, we don't need to come home. I'm just going to put my, my bag in, in the trunk of your car. Once you pick me from school, we can go straight to church. We have to be there at 4.30. And I'm there thinking, gosh, okay, so... I don't get to see her till Sunday night. So I was able to get off work. I I, I finished early on Friday, around 3.30. So I decide to drive to church. So I get there before they're there, and I'm waiting for them. And, And I had this fantasy in my head. You know, I want to see her before she goes off, and then she's going to see me, and then she'll hug me, and I'll give her a hug, and I'll say, I'm going to miss you. And, and you know, this is my little girl. We've, we've done this. We've done this routine so many times. So I'm there, parked, waiting for them for about 30 minutes, and then they pull up in the parking lot, park right next to me, and the kid doesn't even acknowledge that I'm there. I'll be honest, 
It hurt. It was painful. I, I, I remember I was feeling rejected. She's like, I, I'm thinking, not even a hug? I mean, I drove out all the way. I waited here. And she was excited. She saw her friends, youth pastor, and, and, and went off there. I waited when I was, when I was driving off. She now waved. Bye, Papa. I love you. And I'm thinking, you're right. That's right. You, you love me. And, and I, faced, I faced the reality that she's growing up. I'm no longer the center of her world. And she's forgotten that I should be. And she sees her friends, you know, light up, oh, we're, we're leaving, and, and I'm here feeling sad. In her world, I'm moving from somewhere close to the center towards the periphery. I, I know I'm still, I'm still a big part of it. We occasionally will have conversations and we'll talk about things that are meaningful, but it hurt. And the reason why I, I share that story is because I, I think it's a metaphor for what has happened in the United States with the Christian church, with Christianity in general. Christianity has for so long been the dominant voice socially in, in so many ways, and right now, it's not. Right now, it's more like a religious marketplace. It's just one option, and people can turn away from it. And we feel just how I felt on, Saturday, on Friday evening. And then some of us mistakenly call that persecution. It's not persecution. Here's how I flippantly describe it. We woke up one day and we discovered that we're no longer the cool kids. Nobody wants to play with us anymore. But friends, that is the experience of Christians almost everywhere else in the world. That was the experience of the first Christians. The first Christians did not wield the instruments of power, political power, social power. So they had to depend on spiritual power. So these disciples were saying, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to us right now, to Israel. And Jesus says, you will receive power, not through the ballot box, not through a moral majority. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Here's how Stanley Harawas, I love how he puts it so eloquently. He says, I believe that we are in a mess because as Christians in America, we are more American than Christian. And I was reading this, this study 
gosh, I'm blanking on his name. It's a large study of religious beliefs, of, of faith and society in America. It's a little dated now. It goes back about a decade ago. What they found, one of the things they found was that among those who were surveyed, here's what they said. Whenever political or social beliefs conflicted, were in conflict with religious beliefs, guess which one gave way? The religious beliefs all the time. Christians should expect persecution. Next observation. Christians should see persecution as a blessing. Do you know how Jesus describes the experience? In Matthew chapter 5, it's part of the, what we call the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 verse 11 specifically says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And my initial response is, are you out of your mind? He says that people who are going through this, who are suffering because of him, because, because of the gospel, he says they are happy, they are fortunate, they are to be envied. As a matter of fact, that the term that's used there that your Bible translates as blessed, makarios, the ancient Greeks used it to describe the quality of the gods. Jesus says, when we experience persecution because of him, he says we're blessed. Friends, the picture we get from the New Testament is that persecution is not some catastrophic that some catastrophic side of the Christian life to be endured until, you know, we can meet the goal of stopping it as soon as we can. In fact, we can actually examine the response of the first Christians to persecution. I'll read this long passage from Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, from verse 24 to 30. This is after Peter and John have been arrested, brought before the, the council. They had been flogged and warned never again to, to preach in the name of Jesus. And of course, we know their response. They said, we have to obey God rather than man. You judge for yourself. So they come back to the congregation I can imagine their backs were bleeding. They were hurting all over. Here is the response. When they heard this, when they shared it with, with the, the other believers, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke to the Holy Spirit. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. 
Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Did you see how many times they asked God to make it stop? Their focus was that God should strengthen them. That God should give them the boldness to keep doing the very thing that was putting their life and their well-being in danger. Next observation. Christians should respond to persecution with prayer. You see, they were praying. Prayer, including prayers for the persecutors with steadfast trust in God and with joy. In fact, Jesus tells us how to respond to persecution with prayer for those who are persecuting us. Matthew 5, 44 says, pray for those who persecute you. It doesn't need any explanation. It's literal there. John 16, 33 says, I've told you this thing so that in me you may have peace. In this world you have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In fact, friends, let me just say this. I think we should be wary. We should be careful about any warnings about persecution which are not also accompanied with the promise and consolation of the gospel. When, when someone says, hey, look, we, we, we have to stand up, we have to rise up because Christians are, are suffering persecution, it shouldn't be. If that's all they have to say, that message is actually counter to the spirit of the New Testament. That way of talking about persecution is foreign to Scripture. Yes, we acknowledge how hard it is, how tough it is sometimes. But we also take solace in the fact that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Look at, look at what James says at the beginning of of his letter here, James chapter one. I just read two, three, and four, verses two through four. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. Hold on, what's he saying? He's saying I should stay there. No, I don't want to stay there. 
I want to get away from it. I want to make it stop. But he said, let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you'll be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Let me quote a biblical scholar. His name is Nipper. He says, the Christian experience of persecution must be grounded in the scriptural story. It's important to notice how easy it is for our cultural or political outlook to control our response to persecution. Speaking broadly, one of the first moves that American Christians tend to make when they see persecution in the rest of the world is to appeal to the right of religious freedom and demand an end to the persecution. Although this might be a justified response in the American political context, and freedom of religion is a cherished good, it's a good thing, this is not the primary response that the scriptures or the history of the Christian tradition teach. And he gives an example. He says, when Luther responded to persecution in his own day, Martin Luther, when he spoke about Duke George of Saxony, who was described as a bitter foe of the Reformation, he said, quote, this is Luther. He said, certainly I have prayed for him with all my heart. I ask you and yours to commend him to the Lord in your prayers. Remember Emmanuel, the Nigerian pastor who was kidnapped that I started the, the, this message with, the story. When they had blindfolded and tied them up and, and they said, you're going to suffer in the bush and if we like, we might kill you. You know what his response was? He said, I've given myself over to God and I'm ready to die. As he was tortured in the forest, they broke his ribs, they broke a finger on his left hand and cut him in his lower back with a machete. He was eventually released after more than a month in captivity. And he discovered that the head of his village had been behind it because he wanted to stop his Christian witness. Emmanuel resumed his pastoral duties in the same community where his family, he and his family were attacked and abducted. His mother-in-law survived, as did his wife. Here's what he said. There was a day someone asked me to leave my station because of what happened. And I said, if I live there, which pastor will want to serve in that community? Remember what Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. If I can endure it, it will be an example to others. And no, Emmanuel is not superhuman. He still struggles with the trauma of that experience. He says, if I hear a gunshot, I get scared. It's as if that day is happening all over again. But when that happens, I pray. I depend on God. I know that persecution is a part of the Christian life. We who are Christians will suffer. 
Emmanuel was reassigned recently to a different church, but he still sees his kidnappers occasionally. And the article goes on to say that surprisingly, he does not feel fearful or angry when he sees them. Quote, all I can do is pray that God touches them. Forgiving them is necessary because God has forgiven me. If I know God, if I know Jesus Christ, I must forgive them. Emmanuel has this message for his brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. The same truth that sustained him during those long days in the camp of those Islamic militants. He says, depend on God in every situation. That's what he says. There's a buddy of mine who is, is a, a biblical theologian in, in the Chicago area. And I was talking with him yesterday because he grew up actually not far from the place where these events happened with Emmanuel. And his father was murdered by Islamic militants because he was a Christian. I asked him, here's a question I asked him. What is one insight you would share with a group of Christians in America about persecution? Without hesitation, here's what he said. I think for me, it's the way that persecution makes people seek God much more and depend on him for deliverance. The faith becomes more serious to people because they know quite clearly that it can cost them their lives. Not only is he a Christian, he has gone on to devote his life to discipling and teaching other people. After losing his father to persecution. So what does that mean for us? I would encourage us to, to rethink how we view our identities as followers of Jesus. To see ourselves as people who belong to the kingdom. Life may be good. You may not be experiencing any persecution. But if and when it does happen, for us to acknowledge that this is a part of the Christian story. It's an integral part of the Christian experience. And to respond by placing our focus and our trust on the one who has promised never to leave us, who's promised that we're never forsaken. And I know there may be someone here who's going through persecution. You may be going through a hard time here in the room, or those who are watching online. You may be going through a hard time specifically because you are a Christian. You're not forsaken. God is with you. 
And I love, I love the fact that we have the International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church. I love it because it reminds us that we're part of a bigger family. It reminds us that we're connected to other people, even if their experience is different from ours. You know what the New Testament writers told some people who were, who, who were going through hardship? It was a reference to Satan. They said, resist him, resist the enemy, stand firm in the faith, knowing that the same experiences are happening to your brothers and sisters all over the world. When, when we experience difficulties, when we experience pushback or even suffering because of our faith, there's something that connects us with the family of God around the world. Christians experience persecution because of kingdoms in conflict. Christians should expect persecution. But Christians should consider persecution a blessing. And our response, the response should be with prayer and steadfastness as we trust in God who is always there for us and with joy. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.